Hey guys, hopefully uh, you have a Bible and a notepad, a pen, uh, you can get that in front of you. A cup of coffee, right? Maybe a big donut or something. But I'm glad you're joining us wherever you're joining us from, kitchen, living room, maybe your work, listening on your way to work. Glad you're joining us. Uh, hopefully you checked out last week. Pastor Aiden did a great job continuing our conversation. If you didn't check it out, you need to check it out. Has some great stories about his kids, right? And uh, he blames his uh, energetic kid on his wife. And I doubt that, don't you? <laughs> I really do doubt that. But I'm glad you're here. Pastor Aiden and I want to have this conversation with you. It's something that's kind of been pressing in our heart. It's a conversation that actually both of us thought was essential, conversation that we think is necessary. Uh, it's one that is kind of directed to the church, so followers of Christ. But I think it's a conversation that's absolutely vital if you're not a follower of Christ. Like if you're somebody who's just checking things out, I think this conversation is vital and it may clear some things up for you that I would think would be confusing uh, for you if you were kind of looking from the outside in. Uh, we've been talking in this uh, series because these last two years have been anything but normal. You know that. I know that. Don't need to make the case for that. It's been exhausting for a lot of people, exasperating, disorienting. It's been very disruptive, right? There's this national mood of frustration and fear, anger, all those things we've talked about. Uh, our, natu our natural rhythms of things we're used to kind of get upset, right? Everything's changed, right? I was in uh, the airport. I flew to our campuses in Atlanta and South Carolina last week, and uh, everything's different. Everybody's got a mask on, right? Uh, and so everything's been disrupted. The last two years have changed everything. Everybody seems to be a medical expert these days, right? Everybody does. I was sitting with my, my grandson. I got two grandkids, and uh, his name is Corbin. I think we have a picture. It's cute, right? Ah, oh, that's my awe factor. I don't, can't put my kids up there, but my grandkids, right? And uh, I, he wants to be a doctor. He told me that. We were having pancakes together, uh, Pappy and Corbin. And I said, that's awesome, Corbin. Why do you want to be a doctor? He said, I'd like to go to the doctor. And then I asked the natural next question. I said, why do you like to go to the doctor? And this is what he said to me. He said, I like it when they stick that toothpick up my nose. <laughs> I, I didn't know what to think, right? So he's had a COVID test and like, he actually likes it. He's the only person I've met that actually likes when they do that. Everything has been disrupted. Everything's changed. There's all these dividing lines. These last two years have people hankering to get back to normal. A lot of people, like, I just can't wait to get back to normal. I just heard somebody say that the other day. I can't wait, Pastor Dan, till we get back to normal. I'm like, are you listening to our series? Because here's what I think. Here's what I think. I'm not sure that that is the most informed and effective response for the church of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is a pivotal moment. I cannot stress that enough for the church to look deeply and honestly at itself and to listen humbly, and I would say long and hard to the teaching of Jesus. I fear normal might be the very thing that's caused the church of Jesus Christ to lose its effectiveness, its influence, and its impact. I feel normal, whatever that was, might be the thing that caused the church to lose what Jesus said was its saltiness. Matthew 5, in his first recorded sermon, he says, y'all are the salt of the earth. He says, but if salt loses its saltiness, its effectiveness, its impact, its influence, how's it going to be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Here's what Pastor Aiden and I want to do. We simply want to look over the cultural ridge of our time, make some observations of several things that must change to recover the saltiness Jesus is talking about here. And what we're doing in order to do that is leaning into five 
You ready? Intense and intimate chapters in the Bible. If your Bible is, just go to chapter 13 of John and then go to chapter 17. Hold that in your hand and kind of do that because that's where we're at for these six weeks together. Uh, in that little part of the Bible that you have between your fingers, Jesus is teaching his followers at a very significant moment. And this is a very intimate conversation that he has with them, preparing them for what's next. And the reason for that is this, is because normal was evaporating. The context of this little conversation is, is anything but normal. You see, John spends his book, and he spends the first 12 chapters, he's covering years of Jesus' life. But then in these little chapters you have between your fingers, he slows it up. He puts the brakes on. And it's hours of a conversation because things are anything but normal. I mean, all of a sudden there's religious uproar, or there's governmental uproar, or there's all kinds of things happening. He's sitting with his followers, his, most, his closest followers, all of whom will eventually in a few hours desert him. One of who would betray him into the hands of his eventual killers, and one that would deny that he knew him before breakfast even came. It's interesting, right? Eventually, the religious leaders are going to hand him over to the hated government in order to squelch his voice once and for all. And Jesus wants to have this conversation with them, and he wants to have it with us. Because he says, I'm not looking for y'all to make sure things get back to normal. I want to prepare you for what's next. And what would happen... Out of that preparation was a movement that changed the world, changed the world forever, and has impacted you today. Here's some of the things that we've already looked at, and if you're taking notes and you weren't able to join us, uh, Jesus teaches this, producing fruit must replace managing busyness. We're busy, 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 right? And he said, nah, nah, producing fruit, staying close and connected to Jesus. There's sometimes times of pruning, the hard times in our life, that's what God uses, right? To produce more fruit. Some of you are in that right now. Last week, Pastor Aiden did a great job of saying, hey, uh, following the Spirit's got to replace going with the flow. Like in this age and culture of spiritual drift where people are just going with the flow, listening to all kinds of voices, like the Spirit of God inside of disciples of Jesus is the one who's going to point us to Jesus, show us Jesus, help us love and follow Jesus, show us what's wrong, and then show us what's wrong with what's wrong and what's wrong with what's right. You remember that? And who wins in the end? I want to just take it a step further today. Can we do that? For a few minutes, I just want to take it a step further. Here's what I know. These last two years have been disruptive, and one of the things that's disrupted is this, is that all kinds of events and activities have been shut down. Some of you have been frustrated with that, right? <laughs> Like, like you're watching football games a year ago and nobody's in the stands. You're like, what happened, right? Concerts are canceled, weddings postponed, all kinds of, of entertainment things get kind of off the docket. Some of you, vacation. Uh, my wife and I had vacation planned. I was supposed to take several weeks off, and, and uh, one of the places I've been wanting to go for years is, is down to the Billy Graham Library and all that kind of stuff, and we had it planned down to the T, a couple weeks planned to a T, and then COVID, right? And everything's canceled. Like, we're a culture that loves and enjoys, and there's nothing wrong with events and activities, but here's what I think is interesting. What's interesting is uh, two weeks ago, I shared a statistic with you that a little north of 60% of the United States population would call themselves Christians. And, and if that's you, right, lean in. They say, I'm a Christian. A little north. Of, it's declining, but that's still a significant number. 
And what's interesting about that to me is many, I would even say maybe most, who call themselves Christians measure their Christianity by their activities and the events that they attend. You think about it. I mean, I hear this all the time. I'm a Christian. I go to, you already filled it in for me. Thank you. <laughs> I go to church. I'm a Christian. I go to a Bible study. I'm a Christian. I go to a Christian school. I'm a Christian. I go to Christian concerts, drink Christian coffee, you know, whatever it is. I, I'm a Christian. The events that I attend somehow are a measure. In fact, I had a church call me uh, years ago, and they, they wanted to know if I'd come and uh, interview to be their pastor. I didn't go, by the way. <laughs> but on the phone, my wife was listening. I said, can you tell me something about your church? And tell me what, what the heart of your church is. And here's what the guy said to me. This was back in the day when churches used to have three distinct services, Sunday morning, which was different than Sunday night, which was different than Wednesday night. There were three different events or activities or services. And he said this to me. He said, the way I see it, Pastor Dan, is this. People who come Sunday morning, they love the church. But people who come Sunday morning and Sunday night, they love the pastor. And then he said this, but people who come Sunday morning, Sunday night, and then they'll come back again Wednesday night, those are the people that love Jesus, is what he said. What was he doing? I mean, I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Uh, he was simply saying that I measure my experience of Christianity with events, with services that I attend. Many Christians have been frustrated that their events were interrupted during this time because that was the major way that they experienced or measured their Christianity. What's interesting to me is this. When Jesus is preparing these guys in this little conversation that you have your Bible open to for what's next, you ready? He didn't mention attending events. That's interesting. He didn't mention it. But he had plenty to say about something else that I would dare say very few Christians experience, but something that he says is essential in the life of a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Well, here's the sermon in a sentence. Ready? Get your pen ready. Here it is. The sermon in a sentence, what Jesus is going to show us, experiencing community must replace just attending events. Events aren't bad. Please hear me say that right up front. Events aren't bad. They serve a purpose, but they can't be the ends. They've got to be a means, and community is the goal. Attending Christian events is not the measure of a true disciple of Jesus. And furthermore, sometimes attending a lot of events can be the very thing that blocks us from experiencing true, biblical, Christ-like community. Many times our culture, here's what they see, and, and this is frustrating. If you're not a Christian and you're watching this, you're not somebody who's a follower of Christ, you, you would probably say, yeah, that's why. Many of you will see a group of people attending Christian events whose lives don't look or function a lot different than theirs. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. you got to understand something, that experiencing this unique community is what I want you to experience as you connect your life to me. John 13, you have your Bible open there. Let's start there, and then we're going to go to John 17. Start in John 13. Here's context. Context is this. Jesus does something that like catches his disciples off guard. He starts washing their feet. They're like, what? <laughs> in fact, they're so caught off guard that Peter objects. He's like, you're not going to do it. Jesus like, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter's like, give me a bath. And so ended up washing Peter's feet. 
But that, that wasn't all. Then, then we go from that, and then Jesus, in this intimate conversation, he says, and one of y'all, sitting around the table, one of you guys is going to betray me into the hands of my killers. They're all like, what? And then he says, I'll even go further. The one who's going to betray me is the one that I'm going to dip, the sop. I'm going to, like, we're going to share this community thing, and it was a way of extending friendship and love. That's interesting. You can almost feel the tension in the room. And then Jesus says this in John 13. He says, verse 33, My children, I'll be with you only a little longer, like he's going to go somewhere. And you'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. He said, we ain't going back to normal. That's what he's saying. He said, we ain't going back to normal. And Peter listens to that, and he's like, where are you going? Because <laughs> I want to come. And then Peter has, he says, because I would lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, you're going to, you ready? If it's not tense enough already, you're going to deny you even know me before breakfast tomorrow. That's interesting. And then Jesus drops this. In John 13, begin verse 34, he says, a new command, a fresh command, I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus begins to describe for them that it's not events that they're to put on to manage or even attend, but there is a community that he wants them to experience, nurture, and cultivate because they're connected to him. Write this down in your notes. What is he talking about? He's talking about a community of culturally abnormal love. It's a love that is abnormal. It's radically abnormal in our culture. That's what he's talking about. He says, this is how you're going to know. Disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. I'm not talking Christians now. I'm saying disciples, those who've connected and are following Jesus, will be known by their culturally abnormal radically abnormal love for each other. Can I show you a couple things? I'll be quick about this, but it's worth us seeing. Uh, if you have your Bible open, just, just look back at it. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Uh, another guy paraphrased it this way. Here's the way everyone out there will know that you've been discipled to me, that you have a heart of love for one another. Listen, listen. He doesn't say everybody's going to know by the events you attend. That's not what he says. <clears throat> what he does say is it's this community of love that you cultivate, experience, and extend. Our love for each other, write this down somewhere, there's no slide for it. Our love for each other is the biggest billboard that we have. It's interesting to me. By this, everyone's going to know. The problem is not that we need more and more Christians to attend more and more Christian events. But what we do need is more and more disciples of Jesus following Jesus in a way that cultivates a community of radically abnormal love. Sometimes it's our activities and events that get in the way. Can I tell you, can I, can I have a confession time? You know what a temptation of people who do what I do is? You want to know? Uh, temptation is to just do more and more activities as a church, more and more events. I have people saying, we should do this, we should do that, all the time. I saw this, and this church did this. And, and literally, me and the other pastors here, that is a temptation. We could fill the week with activities and events 
and we could have people attending events. And it might very well be the very thing that keeps them from experiencing community. Because when you attend an event, you're a spectator. But when you experience community, you're a participant. And there's a difference between going to church and belonging to a community. It's interesting. Um, I was reading a commentator, Frederick Dale Brunner. He says this, The mutually lived out heart love of Christians for one another will be the single greatest missionary force in the world. That's worth writing down. Just pause this. Write that down, right? He's like, this is our evangelism. This is how we show the world we belong to Jesus. It's that kind of love that, quite frankly, you can't realize, can't even be demonstrated simply by being a spectator at an event. Not that those events are bad, not that those are, are bad, but, but it is realized when you participate, belong to a community. It is realized in the realness of doing life together, in the messiness of relationships, in the longevity of loyalty to others over time, in the corridors of commitment in a community. That's what he's saying. He's saying that is how you are going to show the world. I, I believe this, won't spend much time on it, but I believe a lot of people get frustrated and actually some people give up on Christianity because they look at following Jesus like a math formula. I've been thinking about that this week. As though Jesus invites us into this math formula and say, Dan, make sense of that. Well, math, I, I loved math growing up. I wanted to be a math teacher, right? Uh, the reason I loved math is this, one plus one always equals two. Always. New math, old math, always equals two. I loved math until I got into calculus. Some of you know this story, right? When I got into calculus, like none of it made sense to me. And so you know what I did? I did what you would do. I, would do. I quit. <laughs> Didn't make sense. And a lot of people look at Jesus that way. Like, hey, following Jesus is this. I go to church. I teach Sunday school. I put offering in. One plus one plus one equals three. And what happens in life is I go to church. I teach Sunday school. I put my offering in. And I face some really hard things. And it's like, I thought the math was supposed to work out. And some of you get frustrated. It doesn't make sense to them, right? As though Jesus invite into some math formula. He didn't invite us into a math, he invited us into a family. That's what he did, a family where relationships happen. Where, where, where the thing that glues us together is love, and sometimes it's love in the messiness, in the mundane. That's what he invited us into. So we get to belong to this, and then he says this, I want you to see this, I, I gotta show you this. He says, love one another, now look at this, as I have loved you. So you must love, love one another. Part of this seems obvious, right? Uh, you could read this, and it's, it's right to read it this way. He says, watch how I love you, Now I want you to go love each other that way. And, and man, that's, that's fine, okay? Like, like, that makes sense to me, because they got to see how Jesus loved. They got to see this graceful and gritty love that Jesus displayed when he touched the leper, when he healed the sick, when he reached out to the poor, the, 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 those who were marginalized in their society. They, they got to see a pursuing love when he looked up the tree and said, there's Zach, come on down, I'm going to go to your house. They got to see this tender and truth-filled love when he knelt down with the woman caught in adultery. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. They got to see this kind yet convicted love that met with the religious leader Nicodemus at night and answered his questions, pointing him to salvation, that his religion wasn't going to save him, but it was only going to be a relationship with Jesus. 
They got to see this love that wouldn't discriminate when he had to go through Samaria and he talked to the woman at the well. They got to see this welcoming love when the kids were invited to sit on his lap. They got to see this caring love. They got to see a serving love as he washed their feet. In a few minutes, he's going to die and he's going to show them a sacrificial love because his entire life was leveraged for the benefit of others, clear to his death. Can I tell you something? What Jesus is saying is when my life is connected to him, that is the radical, abnormal love that gets exhibited. The early church created quite a stir and disturbance in, in, in Rome. They, they were seen as a threat, not because they protested, not because they marched, not because they yelled, not because they signed petitions. That wasn't it. In fact, they had one guy who made observation and the thing that caused the disturbance wasn't all that. They weren't shaking their fist. We deserve, we need. They, that wasn't it. But when Tertullian, an African theologian, wrote about what he observed, here's what he said in the early church. See how much they love each other. They're ready to die for each other. That sounds like people who were con <coughs> connected to Jesus. It was their culturally abnormal love for each other that upset the status quo, that rattled the people in power, and that threatened the cultural norms. Can you rewind that and play that again? That is what it was. It's instructive for us, guys. Now, there's something else I want to show you because it's fine to read it that way. That's a fine application, actually. But go back to your Bibles, and I want you to write in your Bibles. Go ahead and circle this. Love one another, then circle this word, as. Just circle it. I was meeting in a Bible study with a guy this week. He has a three-year-old daughter. And uh, I was thinking about Aiden's, Pastor Aiden's uh, story last week. Uh, his three-year-old daughter isn't writing on any siblings' faces, but she's writing on the walls and the doors and the windows, right? And uh, he's, like, frustrated. So he's trying to teach her, and he said... Listen, he called her by name. He says, you can't write on walls. You can't write on doors. You can't write on windows. You, you're supposed to write on paper. If it's paper, you can use your markers, your pens, your crayons to write on that. And so she wanted to be an obedient daughter. <laughs> and so his Bible was open on the coffee table. And next time he went to read his Bible, there's marker, there's crayons, and there's pen all over his Bible because what did she do? <laughs> She listened not only to dad, but what he said to me is, I think she's been listening to you because I think you ought to mark your Bible up. Circle the word as because that word as is interesting. That word as comes from the Greek word kathos. You can forget that. But it means as, as is translated here. And it also means from. And I think that's instructive to us. From. Love from this love that I've had for you. Uh, the same author I mentioned earlier points out this, that that instruction command is in the present tense. Listen, listen to what he says. We are not being asked to work up a love. It's not what we're being asked to do. I'm going to go gin up this love for each other that we don't already have. But more simply, we're being asked to let the love that true disciples of Jesus already have experienced from Jesus, enjoy because of Jesus, extend to its goal, which is others. That's what he's saying. Keep on loving one another out of the well of my love for you. Extending this abnormal love shows that you've received it. It's the difference between somebody who would say, I'm a Christian because I attend events, and somebody who's a disciple that has received this abnormal love. 
You see what I'm saying? I think that's what he's saying. That you understand how abnormally you've been loved. Think about in, in the John 13 context. Just, just let the Bible come alive. The Bible is like really, really fascinating. Just, you wouldn't have to go out of John 13. Two main players in this, in this chapter, I mean, other than Jesus and the disciples there, are who? Peter and who? Judas. Isn't that interesting? I think they, that in this chapter we have some idea of this deep love Jesus has. Think of Peter. Jesus comes and washes his feet. Peter's like, no, no, no. And Jesus like, man, if I don't, you don't have no part with me. And so he winds up washing his feet. What a display of love. He washes the feet of the very one who before breakfast is going to deny he knows him. And Jesus knows that. He's the one who predicted it. That kind of love goes way beyond the way we experience and express love. Honestly, right? Like, pat you on the back, love you, bro. Like, it's almost kind of a farewell and I love you, bro. <laughs> right? I mean, it goes well beyond that because this kind of love is a devoted love. This kind of love is a long-lasting, loyal love. This kind of love is a carry your burdens love. It's the kind of love that does life with us. I'm watching this, uh, my office, uh, we rearrange things here in our building. In my office, I share um, space with some groups that meet in there. And so on Sunday morning, when I'm moving in and out, there's a group that meets in there. And I'm watching them do life together. You know what they're doing? They're carrying each other's burden. Uh, one of their members lost his wife in all of this. And, and last time I was in there, and I'm just watching them surround him. This last week they had a dinner so they could just be with him. A big fish fry. Uh, he went ice fishing. With the, I don't know if he had to eat what he caught, but, but they're just surrounding him. They're, doing, they're, they're carrying each other's burdens because it is heavy. It's hard. It's like fascinating. It, it's the kind of love that serves one another's needs. And then as Peter found out, it is a forgiving love. You don't turn there. Just let me throw it on the screen for you. But Peter writes a letter later, and I wonder if he was remembering this moment when Jesus washed his feet as a way of saying, you know, there's going to be times as a follower of Christ where you're going to mess up. In fact, for you, Peter, it's going to be before breakfast. But I want you never to forget that I love you. And you can always come to me. There's a basin of grace, and there's the towel of forgiveness. And that St. Peter, a little older now, writes this in 1 Peter 4. Above all, I wonder if he's thinking about Jesus washing his feet. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Man, that is a different, that's, that's an abnormal love in our culture. That's a radical love. But it wasn't just Peter. You know anything about this? Judas was in that context, at least for a while. He gets up and leaves in the middle of it. But in the middle of that, if I'm reading this right, Jesus washes his feet. But then he does something else. Like, like he grabs the sop and he dips the sop, which has been this community little bowl. Like, I'm glad we don't do that anymore. Just going to be real honest with that. That's like not my deal. But uh, they're dipping, in the, and, and then he gives it to Judas. Like, I don't know how they were sitting around the table, but Judas had to be close enough to Jesus that he gave it to him. And I think to myself, what a display of deep love that I think 
eventually, because Judas would leave there and then he would come back to the garden with a whole army and he would kiss Jesus' cheek and at that moment they would bound Jesus and take him away to be killed. And I wonder if somewhere in there a teaching of Jesus began to echo back to his disciples. One that he taught early on in his ministry, his first recorded sermon, Jesus said this, he said, y'all have heard it said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That makes sense, right? Just read that again since I screwed it up, right? You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That makes sense, right? That makes total sense. And it even makes sense to us because today the lines of hate seem to be extending broader and broader. Like, like, like it's almost easy to hate people who disagree with us. Author and pastor John Tyson states this, and I think I would agree, that hatred used to be a word used with restraint in only the strongest of cases. But now it's used for people who disagree with us, see life different than us, or express an opposing opinion. Jesus says this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. Yeah, and he's correcting something here. And hate your enemy, but I tell you, verse 44, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? <laughs> and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Now, I want to teach you something, and I want to read from another author, Preston Sprinkle, he says this, Jesus' command to love your enemies was the most popular verse in the early church. Just let that sink in. It was quoted 26 places in 10 different right, by 10 different writers in the first 300 years of Christianity, which makes it the most celebrated command among the first Christians. Matthew 5.44 was the so-called John 3.16 of the early church. An enemy love was the hallmark of the Christian faith. Other religions taught that people should love their neighbors. They even taught forgiveness for those who wronged them, but actually loving your enemy? Only Jesus and his followers took love this far because this is how the love of God extends to us. While we were God's enemies, Christ loved us. Augustine said it this way. He said, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but few know how to love him by whom they were struck. Jesus never calls us guys to do something he didn't demonstrate. At the cross of Jesus, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, Jesus is infiltrating enemy lines. And when he did, shh, listen. Can you hear it? When you go to that story at that cross, when he crossed enemy lines, if you listen real careful, you can hear from a dying man on the cross these words. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want you to know something. The community attached to that man crying that statement from that 
cross is a community of radically abnormal love. Somewhere along the way, many of us who would say we're Christians attending Christian events have adopted an attitude of hate and anger. Hate and anger for people who are different than us, think different than us. And yet when we look at that man on that cross crying that statement, he says, those who are my disciples are going to love in a radically abnormal way. He says something else, and here's where I want to end today. John 13 is where we're at, but then I want you to flip back to the end of that thing you have between your fingers. John 17. Because he said it's a community of radically abnormal love, but he then prays. He ends this whole thing with prayer. He says in verse 20, chapter 17, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. Jesus is praying for the guys in the room. Right? So he's praying for his disciples. But I pray also for those who would believe in me through their message. I don't know if you knew this or not, and maybe I can be the first to tell you this, that in the Bible there is a prayer that Jesus prayed for you, if you're a follower of Christ. He prayed for me. That's kind of, just let that sink in. Jesus is praying for us right here. And what was his prayer? Well, he didn't pray for success, safety, or even happiness. Look what he prayed. When Jesus prayed, he prayed that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. What's he talking about? He's talking about experiencing a different kind of community. I write it down this way. He's talking about a community of culturally abnormal unity. <laughs> just, just write that down because I don't need to make this case. In fact, don't have time to do it. But our culture is anything but unified right now. Like in my lifetime, I don't know if I've seen it more fragmented. Maybe some of you have. You lived a little longer than me or whatever. This is one of the most polarizing, polarizing times of our generation. One of the most polarizing times I've ever experienced. Unfortunately, that divisiveness and disunity can creep into the church of Jesus Christ. And when it does, listen to what I want to tell you, it robs it of its saltiness, its influence, its impact, its effectiveness. There's several things Jesus says here I just want to point out, and then I'm going to close. He says this, that all of them, verse 21, may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us. Now look, why? So that the world may believe that you've sent me. Could, could he really be saying what I think he's saying here? That, that just like love, that unity is a key to winning the world for Jesus and displaying the message of the... Could he be saying that? I think he is. I, I read this article. I just came across it. happened across it. But remember, guys, some of you read his stuff, maybe. Max Lucado, um, older author. He says this, unity creates belief. Disunity fosters disbelief. Who wants to board a ship of bickering sailors? That's a pretty good imagery. Paul Bilheimer may very well write, say, when he says, the continuous and widespread fragmentation of the church has been the scandal of the ages. It has been Satan's master strategy. The sin of disunity, this is the part that got me, the sin of disunity, you hear how he says it? It's not just a symptom of, he said the sin of disunity probably has caused more souls to be lost than all other sins combined. Wow. Whether he's right, wrong, you agreed to it, it's worth thinking about. <laughs> 
The message of Jesus unites what otherwise would be divided. Uh, the Apostle Paul picked up on this. Can I show you this passage really quick? Look what he says. He says, in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. And then he says this, why? Because you're all baptized into Christ. He's like, you're immersed into the family. And you've clothed yourselves with Christ. Your identity's in Christ. So then he says, there's never, neither Jew nor Gentile. Is he saying there's no more Jews or Gentiles? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, in Christ, the walls that would have divided them are crashed. Neither is there slave nor free. That would have been huge. Socioeconomic divide. And then he says this, nor is there male and female. Which also, I mean, you need to understand that when he's writing this, females didn't have the same rights. And he said, that in, like, this would have been scandalous. The people reading this were like, what? Paul? <laughs> he says, all are one in Christ Jesus. If he's writing this today, he would say there's neither rich nor poor, blue collar, white collar, black nor white, Republican or Democrat. That's what he'd say. He's not saying these differences don't exist. What he is saying is they're not the primary thing that identifies a disciple of Jesus. It's this kind of unity that's not uniformity. We don't look the same. We're not all the same. But, but, but I like the way one guy in church history, and, and there's been some debate on who this should be attributed to, he says, in essentials, there's unity. I love this. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I love that. And what Jesus is praying is this. I want them to be one. Like, Jesus says, I want them to be one. Why? Because that's how the world is going to know. What are you saying? They're going to look at, at their unity and they're going to realize that my message is true and that you sent me. That's what he's saying. Their harmony is going to be a billboard. And then he goes on to say this, that they may be one. Well, how? As we are one. Now, Jesus qualifies this. Uh, what's he saying here? Let me just deepen the dive in, uh, dive in the deep end and come back out for a second. But he's saying that they may be one as we are. God, in his essence, is one God, three distinct persons. You and I were made by a God, if we believe the story of the Bible, who has always and all eternity existed in perfect community and unity. And when he made mankind, he invited him into that. Our unity, this is important. What Jesus is saying, as a community of disciples, is directly tied to our relationship with God, staying close with him, connected to his heart. You can't divorce the two. That's what he's saying. Angry, grumpy, divisive, putting others down. Christians have somewhere lost a connection to the heart of God who exists in this perfect community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's the way Paul picks it up in Ephesians. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. By the way, one commentator says, nowhere are we told to build unity. We're told to keep unity. Why? Because unity is kept as we stay connected and close to God. That's what he's saying. How do we do that? How do we keep the unity? Look at verse 2, the verse right above it. Be humble, gentle, completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
When we love and bear with one another in humility, what divides us begins to diminish. I promise you. When we start to bear each other's burdens, when we start to serve one another, what, what divides us diminishes. When, I, when I'm with somebody in need who's really struggling, I'm not asking them who they voted for. I, I'm not asking them. Like, the things that divide us, they diminish. When I'm not doing that, the things that divide us take center stage. And you know what else happens? He says, I want you to do that, make every effort to keep the union spirit. There's one body, one spirit, just as you're called, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who's over all, through all and in all. When we're bearing with each other, what divides us diminishes and what unites us surfaces. You know what happened? A community surface that was abnormally united. Jesus' band of disciples, he had a very diverse group. Did you know that? Simon the Zealot, Matthew the tax collector, probably opposite ends of the political spectrum. And yet he pulls these guys together, and you know what sprouted? The church. And the description in Acts chapter 2 says it all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and to prayer, community. Deep sense of all came over all them. Apostles performed miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place. They shared everything they had. They sold property, possessions, shared the money with those in need, looking out, bearing each other's burdens. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They even met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. This is community. And all the while praising God, enjoying the goodwill of all the people. It had a impact <laughs> and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved there's the evangelistic influence can I ask you a question Let me just ask you a question if you're somebody who calls yourself a Christian can I ask are, are you just attending events and activities or are you experiencing community like like you might be thinking well, I'm not expensive. I can't find a church no no wrong question I, I maybe need to ask how am I extending that kind of community. Like, like whose burdens are you carrying? Whose needs are you serving? Is there somebody, maybe a brother or sister, that, I don't know, needs that basin of grace, <clears throat> that towel of forgiveness in your life? Like, maybe it's a group. Maybe it's a group of people. I wonder, who in your life can't you stand? Like, who can't you stand? <laughs> really? Probably somebody comes to your mind. How does your participation in a community like that inspire, motivate you to extend the love of Jesus? It's interesting. I wonder how we can help each other do that. I, I want to end today the way we did two, two weeks ago. A little different, and if you're alone, it might feel weird, but do it anyways. I just want to end with a responsive prayer. Where my initials are, I'll pray, and then where it says all I'd love for you to join me out loud. You do it out loud. There's something happens when we do it out loud. But let's begin this way. Jesus, thank you for loving us in radically abnormal ways. Let's do this together. Help us to grow in our understanding of how deep and wide, high and long your love for us really is. 
Jesus, as we grow in our understanding of your love, will you help us to extend and experience that love as a community of your disciples? I'd like you to join me. Help us to love each other out of the vast well of your love for us. And help us to love even those who do not like us. Jesus, our world is uniquely polarized and divided. Many times this same spirit has encroached into your church altogether. Forgive us for ways we've allowed Satan to sow a, spe a spirit of disunity and division into the community of disciples. And Jesus, forgive our pride that so often is at the root of our divisiveness. Help us to connect and commune with you in ways that create an abnormal unity. Help us to keep the unity of the Spirit through a bond of peace, loving each other, bearing with each other as we grow in our relationship with you. And God, I pray that that's exactly what would happen in our midst, that we would replace simply attending events with experiencing the community of those who are connected to, close to following Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.